9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City, and we are joined today by... Wendy Sherman, former Undersecretary of State, who is now a professor in the practice of public leadership and director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. Hi, Wendy. Hi, David. And David Sanger, also affiliated with Harvard's Kennedy School from time to time, but better known as a New York Times reporter and a founding member of the team here at Deep State Radio. Hi, David. Hey, David. And far, far away, one of our favorite people in the whole world, um, Anna Fifield, who is the Washington Post Beijing bureau chief and therefore is in Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. Is that where you are? Yeah, kia ora, as we say here from New Zealand. <laughs> kia ora, is that what we say in the morning in New Zealand? Any uh, time of day is good to say kia ora. As we were saying just before we began this episode, uh, I think all of us feel that uh, Jacinda Ardern is our prime minister. She is leading the world, uh, not, you know, seemingly managing things like, you know, massive uh, uh, pandemics and uh, volcanic eruptions and other kinds of crises while giving birth and raising a child in the other arm, doing it all with a sense of humor. Uh, you Kiwis are amazing. Well, I'm glad you said it, David, and didn't leave it to me to say that. But yeah, I mean, this is the longest time I've spent in New Zealand in the 20 years that I've been away. Uh, so it's nice to be here, but obviously a bit weird as well, considering that we're locked down. But um, yeah, I don't want to taunt you, David, because you know that's not my style. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we have a government here that's following a science-based approach to dealing with this pandemic. So we had one month of very strict lockdown, not even any takeout or delivery during that time. Everyone had to stay home. Um, but one, one month and we're done. Uh, we're starting to emerge from it and it's almost been entirely eliminated from New Zealand. So I think it's, it's working pretty well. well. There's a lot we could learn. Now, of course, Anna is the author of The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and Rule of Kim Jong-un, which I think we all agree is a great book and the definitive book on Kim Jong-un. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation in the press about the well-being of Kim Jong-un, his health, uh, if his health was really bad, who might succeed him, uh, uh, talk about his sister succeeding him or his uncle succeeding him, and then maybe he's just in a resort having a good time. Um, Anna, how are you sorting all this out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's confusing. We, you know, there are so many pieces of so-called evidence or anecdotes that could uh, go either way on this. But I think, you know, as always with North Korea, with this kind of speculation that comes out, it pays to be cautious and prudent and just wait to see what happens. Because uh, there's a very, very strong record of 
the outside world being wrong about North Korea and these kind of reports, you know, and either, you know, the predictions that Kim Jong-un couldn't do it, that he couldn't take over. Um, but also in 2014, he disappeared from the scene for six weeks. And there was a lot of conjecture at that time that he had been deposed or there'd been some kind of medical issue or even that his ankles had given out because he'd eaten too much cheese uh, was one of the theories. Uh, oh no. um, and of course, six weeks later, he returned. He did have a limp and was walking with a cane, but he's gone on just to be kind of stronger and more confident since then to develop a hydrogen bomb and an intercontinental ballistic missile. So we shouldn't write him off yet. I'm, I'm, what I'm doing right now is waiting to see either that famous newsreader, Ri Chun-hee, to come on New North Korean TV in a black dress, or for Kim Jong-un to like waddle out from his, you know, palace on the coast in Wonsan and, you know, call our bluff yet again. So that's a long way of saying, I don't know. Well, Wendy, nobody or very few people in the U.S. government have had as much experience dealing with North Korea as you have um, in, in, in several of your tours. What's your take on all of this? And what's your take on how the U.S. government is responding to it? Well, it's great to be here with you, David, and to be with Anna Fifield. I'm a huge fan of her book. Uh, and great to be here with David Sanger. I'm most of the time a huge fan of his writing. Um, he and I go way back on lots of security issues. Um, look, I think what's most interesting about this is that the South Koreans have been absolutely positive in their statements that Kim is alive. Maybe not perfectly well, but alive and working. And it's really interesting that the South Koreans have gone so far out on a limb to be so definitive, including the unification minister's statement just yesterday, the day before, keeping up with time zones here. Uh, and given that the South Koreans are really uh, sort of at a high point in public opinion because they seem to have handled the coronavirus quite well and quite masterfully, I doubt they would go too far out in the limb unless they had some definitive understanding that he was not dead. <laughs> that is not to say that he may not be incapacitated. That's not to say that he may not be as had been reported by CNN um, gravely ill. Uh, I suppose all that's possible, but I think uh, my guess is he's not dead. Uh, but I think Anna has it right. We won't know until we know. Well, um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that um, I've been following David Sanger's takes on Korea-related issues since... Mm, about the time of the O.J. Simpson uh, Bronco chase, <laughs> um, uh, which, if, if, if I recall, David, was the same exact time as a press conference you attended in Japan about South Jimmy Carter. Carter. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, in, it was Carter coming. Carter was coming over the border, uh, over the DMZ. They, they gave him a special sort of... Uh, uh, escort over there to announce that he had reached an agreement with Kim Il-sung, the current leader's, uh, assuming he is still the current leader, uh, grandfather, that led to the 1994 um, agreement. And I remember this because I got a call that morning 
from the um, South Korean foreign minister at the time, who was American trained, who said, David, can you believe this? I said, yeah, I can't believe Carter did this. He said, no. Are you watching TV? Look at this OJ chase. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's that's where I picked up the story with David. What's your take on all this? So um, the American officials I have talked to have told me that there is no independent U.S. intelligence to suggest that he is dead. Okay? And that would be consistent with what the South Koreans were saying in public. They are squishy on the question of whether he was sick and so forth. They seem to think that he's at his compound uh, at Wonsan, which was wonderfully described uh, in Anna's book uh, as sort of the place that Kim grew up and, you know, learned to frolic on the beach, at least those parts of it that are not mine. And um, uh, uh, the, uh, if you look at the satellite photos, the commercial satellite photos of uh, Wonsan, what you see is that um, the train that is usually, we, we believe, is used as his personal train is there, and so are several luxury yachts. So all of that would suggest that maybe, just maybe, he's worried about the COVID uh, issues, and he is on what one Korean, North Korean news service called the other day a staycation. Um, so there you go. Um, who knows? Um, What I do know is that it prompted the U.S. to go dust off all of these plans that um, Wendy knows about and probably can't tell us much about, uh, which the U.S. government has had and refined over many years about what you do if there is a sudden vacuum of leadership in North Korea and so forth, which has always led to speculation of what would happen if the Chinese came over the border, if they scrambled to get control of the nuclear weapons, if um, South Korea scrambled to get uh, control of the weapons, if the U.S. was called in to aid in that. And the one really interesting, um, I guess, uh, unclassified version or forcibly unclassified version of this we got actually came from the first WikiLeaks in 2010, probably not my favorite um, uh, memory of her time in in the State Department, um, in which... The, uh, the then uh, American ambassador to South Korea was talking to a senior South Korean official about what those plans might look like. And, and a transcript of that leaked out and sort of confirmed what we had all over the years, you know, suspected were, were the set of concerns. So, Anna, to the average person who doesn't follow this closely, the question has to emerge, why the secrecy? Why does he go off the radar like this? What might explain it if he is not seriously ill or dead? Um, since the staycation explanation seems a little glib, um, uh, what what do you what do you think was behind? I mean, you you describe him in the book as not being a a, a pillar of good health to begin with, um, and I noticed you used the term waddle just a moment ago, as you did in your your last article in the post, um, he's not super fit like our, our president, Donald Trump is. So, so how do you, how would you, uh, you know, this if he is in fact not dead? 
Yeah, I mean, I would also say my gut tells me now that he's not dead either, that he is alive and they seem to be keeping him alive in the state media by putting out letters to his best friends in Syria and Cuba and things like this in his name and letters that don't usually come with photos. So I I also think something is up, but I don't know uh, exactly what that is. But, you know, Kim Jong-un, by his very nature as a dictator, is paranoid, extremely paranoid. He wakes up every morning thinking about how to stay in his position and how to stop, uh, you know, being toppled from this. So even at the best of times, I think he's extremely worried about uh, about rivals within the system. We saw that in the way that he had his uncle executed and then his half-brother assassinated with a chemical weapon in Kuala Lumpur airport. So he's gotten rid of all these rivals uh, on the outside and on the inside in North Korea and is trying to kind of um, keep a hold on his position. So he does sequester himself like North Korean. There's no North Korean White House. North Koreans don't know where Kim Jong-un lives. They don't know anything about his family apart from his glamorous wife who appears at his side quite often. Um, So yeah, so this kind of stuff is kept very, very closely under wraps in North Korea for his own safety. So it's reasonable to think that in a time of coronavirus, yes, that he would, you know, he's social distancing at the best of times, this guy. Uh, It's reasonable to think that he might go out to Wonsan and try to isolate himself there from that. But I have to say, it's a really big deal that he missed April the 15th, the most important day on the North Korean calendar. That is the day of the sun, they call it in North Korea, where they celebrate Kim Il-sung, the eternal president's uh, birth. So I'm really surprised that the North Koreans didn't find a way to have him go to the mausoleum and pay his respects to his grandfather from whom he claims his legitimacy and his right to rule uh, in a socially distanced kind of way. So, yeah. Well, Wendy, first of all, do you have a different kind of an explanation? But the, the follow-on question is, the President of the United States, I, I think for a variety of reasons, because this is who he is, how he does business, but also because I don't think he understands or cares to understand much in terms of the depth of U.S. relations with other countries, has highly personalized the U.S. relationship. It's him and Kim Jong-un. And, and you know, I think this part of the weakness of that, and if, in fact, he is ill, this could also trigger behind-the-scenes maneuvering, uh, you know, other other kinds of things that might make a big bet on Kim the wrong bet. So, you know, I, do you have thoughts on that? Well, David, I think we all understand that President Trump personalizes everything. Everything is about him. And the only reason that it has occasionally been him and Kim is when he thinks uh, he can master something that former President Obama could not. Uh, I think we all remember that when President Obama uh, met with President Trump before he became president, when just as he was about to become president, and said the hardest foreign policy issue you're going to have to deal with is North Korea. And I think that said to Donald Trump, well, then that's the one that's going to be mine. I'm going to build a relationship. I've never not been able to build a relationship with someone Uh, I will make it all happen. Uh, We've seen this time and time again with how he approaches everything is about him. Only I can decide, only my mind matters. 
Uh, I think he's finding that science does matter today. He was ecstatic when uh, Dr. Fauci talked about severe. I never can say it properly, uh, but the drug that might be helpful as a treatment for coronavirus, all of a sudden science becomes useful because it sends up the stock market. So this is always personal for Donald Trump. And I think that uh, as Anna and David know well, because we've talked about this, I was for uh, the president having the first summit with Kim Jong-un because this is a tough problem. And sometimes you take a different try at something than has been tried in the past. But I also said, uh, and Kim only believes that he makes decisions. And in his country, he is the only one who makes decisions. Or as Anna pointed out, he kills you and gets rid of you uh, to try to hold on to his power. So I thought this might work, but... I said the president had to have a team ready to go. He had to have a strategy. He had to know where he was headed, what he wanted to get done in this first summit. And of course, we saw after three tries, none of this happened. Uh, Even when he brought Steve Began on board as a special envoy, and Steve is a very capable professional, um, even though he had to learn Asia, he was learning it. He was traveling around the region. He was getting to know people. Uh, He could not uh, get in front of Donald Trump and ultimately has not been able to succeed. So I thought the one last thing I'll say is I thought it was very interesting the last couple of days when the president said uh, in response to one of um, uh, David and Anna's colleagues, I know, but I can't talk about it in terms of what's happening with Donald Trump. I uh glibly tweeted, well, maybe we should invite Sergey Lavrov to the Oval Office and he can tell Lavrov and then maybe we'll find out. <laughs> then it'll leak. <laughs> then it'll leak, right. Uh, the odds are he's heard from Sergey Lavrov. But in, in any event, um, David, you know, a couple of days ago, or it all blurs together to me, but maybe, maybe it was a week ago, the president was talking about how if it hadn't been for him, this would have turned into a great conflagration. That there, you know, he implied that there would have been a great war if it had not been for him, which, you know, indicates that Donald Trump running into, you know, up to the election, you know, continues to think that he can tout his North Korea success, such as it was, as, you know, a plus in the foreign policy column when he runs for reelection. Of course, Kim being ill, Kim being sidelined. Um, possible change there uh, might under undermine that. Do you you know how do how do you reckon that and 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 do you think a weakened Kim might result in anything happening between now and the election that could have any impact at all? Well, David, I don't think that it's Kim being sick or not sick that is the measure here of whether anything happened. I think the measure of whether anything happened is that uh, during the time that the president was negotiating uh, with uh, Kim Jong-un, Kim was producing uh, nuclear weapons and producing new missiles and missile sites at roughly the same pace that he was before they first met in Singapore in 2018. And uh, I know the president doesn't like to hear this. And when we ran a series of satellite photographs 
uh, about a year ago of the major missile sites and showed new ones that were being built since the agreements were happening, the president declared that we had made up the satellite photographs, which is a little beyond our skills, I think. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that what the president didn't get at the Singapore meeting, and I agreed with Wendy, I thought it was a good idea to go out and have the meeting since we had tried one way for 30 years and gotten no place. Uh, Why not try a a leader-to-leader meeting? But the first thing he needed to get was a freeze, similar to what the United States got, what Wendy got, with uh, the Iranians in the run-up to the uh, Iran negotiations, so that the problem wasn't getting worse. The hole wasn't getting deeper while this went on. And he never got that. And of course, we've not seen a single bit of disarmament. For the president's most loyal uh, supporters, though, they believe he's actually made progress here. And about a year ago, I went to a Trump rally one one summer, uh, just because I hadn't been to one in a long time and wanted to see what they were like. And I wandered around a little bit and um, asked some people about uh, uh, the negotiations with North Korea. The president was was just back from one. And one person who was there said to me, he's the first president to have actually disarmed North Korea. The problem went away. Of course, the president had tweeted, North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat. So I think he's actually convinced his most loyal followers that he actually made progress. Yeah, well, which suggests that the facts on the ground don't may not matter that much. Um, well, look, in the limited time we've got, I, I do want to get to some other issues in Asia. But, but Anna, if I could ask you just briefly, while I, you know, I think the, the evidence tends to be trending towards the idea that, that Kim is still with us. There has been a lot of talk about the successors, and one possible successor was a sister. One possible successor was an uncle. Um, tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, right. So the big difference now in North Korea is there really is no heir apparent to Kim Jong-un. So even when he took over from his father, there was a very hurried process, but still he got three years to be introduced to the leadership, to be promoted up the ranks of the Workers' Party and the military. But uh, right now there's, there's nobody who is an obvious successor to him. And, you know, this whole regime is based on this mythology about the Pektu bloodline that Kim Il-sung descended from this mountain and they all have this special blood flowing through their veins. So it really needs to be somebody in the family. It really needs to be a man because North Korea is a Confucian, hierarchical, traditional place. But there really is no good candidate there. Kim Jong-un has an older brother, Kim Jong-chol. Um, you may remember him as the Eric Clapton superfan, uh, previously best known for just traveling the world, going to Eric Clapton concerts. He's already been passed over once before and has no role and no profile in the regime. Kim Jong-un has a son who's about two years old and uh, not quite ready to take over yet. And then there's this uncle, his um, his brother's his father's half-brother, Kim Pyong-il, who Kim Jong-il had relegated to, sent to Europe for about three or four decades so that he couldn't build a power base. He's now back in Pyongyang, um, probably kind of under very close watch, if not house arrest, to make sure he doesn't try to amass uh, any power there. So that really leaves one Kim and one Kim only, and that's Kim Yo-jong, uh, the younger sister, 
uh, sometimes called the Ivanka Trump of North Korea, which the White House does not like at all because, yes, she is the young, more kind of moderate, more palatable face of of the man she represents. Uh, Frankly, I'm sure I'm sure Kim Yo Jung doesn't much like in comparison either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so she has really emerged as somebody who has been promoted up the ranks in North Korea. She has a public profile. She's an alternate member of the Politburo, the head of the propaganda department. But this whole time, she's really been there supporting her brother, making sure he's got his Mont Blanc pen to sign the Singapore document, making sure he's got an ashtray and things. She's there to make sure he looks good and everything goes right. So it's really difficult to see how she could take over a young woman uh, who's played a supporting role, not a, not a leadership role, but, but there's really nobody else. So maybe she would be a figurehead supported by some of the technocrats at the top of the regime. But, you know, there really is, uh, there is no obvious solution here. It would really plunge North Korea into a crisis if they had, or the regime into a crisis if they suddenly had to replace Kim Jong-un anytime soon. David, can I ask Anna, would it be possible for her to be regent for the son until he's of age, which would be a very long time, but nonetheless to deal with the fact that she's a woman? Yeah, I think I think it is possible that she would could be a regent or that she could be the figurehead uh, leader, and there could be some kind of power sharing arrangement going on. Uh, there's a lot of things possible, but I think that the attempt to do that would really open up a power vacuum and uh, like a big power struggle in North Korea. You know, similar to what we saw in the death of Stalin, uh, my favorite movie du jour uh, there. That I think that would set off a lot of yeah a lot of maneuvering in North Korea. Hey, um, Anna, let me uh, throw in a question as long as we've started in on, on this. So when Kim Jong-un was first taking over, you'll remember there were this series of intelligence reports that came out of the U.S. intelligence community that basically said the military will never put up with him, give him a year, year and a half, he'll be, you know, he's, he's too young, he's too green, nobody's going to respect him. And, you know, in the end, as you point out, uh, he vanquished all of his rivals and emerged as the um, unchallenged leader. Could we be similarly wrong about his sister? Yeah, we could be similarly wrong. I mean, North Korea, they've proven us very capable of being wrong on so many occasions before. Yeah, we could be wrong about her. We, you know, it's impossible to kind of speculate what might happen here. But I think, I mean, on that point, I think a big part of the reason why Kim Jong-un pursued uh, nuclear weapons so aggressively was not just for deterrence and to be taken seriously in the outside world, but to boost his standing at home in North Korea. So, yeah, he wiped out a lot of the top generals and then gave the ones who he promoted a reason to be loyal to him. And those are those shiny new toys that they got that fly very high into the sky. And um, so I think that went a long way to securing a better relationship with the military there. And also, I think one thing that's really often uh, under acknowledged about North Korea is that these nuclear weapons are an intense source of national pride at home uh, in North Korea. And yeah, I distinctly remember talking to this young guy who had been a science student at university in North Korea. And he really like, he detested that regime. He said he found it so disgusting. And so it was so depressed when he realized it was going to continue under Kim Jong-un. But he described in his physics class, learning about nuclear weapons and thinking, yeah, like, wow, you know, we're backwards at 
so many things, but we did this. And we did this when South Korea and Japan did not or have not done this. So there's a really strong domestic reason for that program too. Yeah, no, no. And, you know, the evidence that it had some value is manifest in the Singapore summit as well and manifest in the respect and attention that he's gotten out of the president of the United States. Um, now, having said that, for most of the past three years, the, 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 this North Korea story has been one of the dominant stories with U.S. relations with Asia, the other having been primarily kind of trade with China. Um, and now we're into a situation which um, was unanticipated. And I'd like to spend the last 10 minutes we have talking about that. And that situation is um, the IMF projects that China will grow 1.3% this year. Now, to put that in perspective, during the Great Recession, China reportedly grew over 9%. Uh, China in the first quarter had its first negative quarter of growth since China started releasing such data uh, right after the Cultural Revolution in 1976. Um, uh, China in past crises, including in the wake of the Great Recession, was kind of one of the engines of recovery that existed. But we now have a crisis in Asia, an economic crisis, uh, with China at the center of it, but every economy in Asia is facing recession. Every economy in Asia is facing a situation um, that the head of the IMF department uh, that is responsible for Asia called um, the worst in their modern history. So, you know, this changes things. Now, on top of this, this virus is attributed by many people to uh, origins in China and its spread to missteps by the Chinese government. And, you know, Wendy, again, I personally found listening to Senator Tom Cotton talk about China as in, in the most bellicose terms I've heard an American talk about it. And I could only sense that Trump and the GOP are going to blame China. Trump and the GOP are going to turn up the heat on China. Trump and the GOP are going to set us up for a new Cold War at just the time that that region is really struggling and that that may be a bad formula. But what's your take? My take is the whole world is going to be struggling. Every single economy is going to be struggling, including our own, which is also an engine for the world. So I think we all are going to be in this together. Look, there's no question that there should be and will be investigations about how this all got started. There is no question that China is a competitor and will, even with this economic downturn, which I think will be quite substantial for everybody, and will take a long, it took probably a decade to recover from the 2008-2009 recession. It's going to take more than a decade, I think, to recover from the coronavirus recession slash depression, whatever, or suppression, as some people are calling it. It's going to take a very long time. But China is still going to be a competitor economically, technologically, militarily. Um, both David and Anna can talk quite well, I'm sure, about the military buildup in China. Um, they are going to, they are taking the vacuum that's been created by the president stepping back from American leadership around the world to fill that vacuum in countless ways. 
Uh, so they're going to challenge us diplomatically as well. And so in my view, we have to work with China where we can. North Korea may be one place where we can work together. We should challenge uh, China where we must, uh, in the fields where we are competitors. And there are going to be places we're going to have to confront China uh, because they're going to do things that we believe based on our values, our view of the world, our belief in democracy, how people should be treated, what the world should look like, um, where we're going to have to confront them. But whether it's North Korea or climate, which can't be solved without China's cooperation and engagement, um, we're going to have to do all three of those things and be very clear-eyed, very clear-eyed about what's happening, what's going on. And quite frankly, I certainly hope, uh, as I think everybody knows, I'm a Democrat, I hope that uh, Joe Biden wins and that we return to believing that America has a place of leadership in the world. Yes, there are other leaders, uh, but the world is in desperate need of someone to say, we're going to engage with the world, we're not going to retreat from the world, all while we spend time building our infrastructure, building our country, getting the things done that we need to get done here. David, how bad can it get? Um, the president has called out China and his rhetoric has gotten worse. I talked about cotton. Pompeo has slammed China um, over Hong Kong protesters, but also the coronavirus toll. Um, Jared Kushner, um, our acting president, um, uh, you know, has, has made statements as, as recently as today that we are investigating it and China will pay. Looks like this is becoming a potential focal point for the campaign. Um, well, they're trying to make it a focal point for the campaign, David, but I think they keep undercutting themselves in that in a few ways. So first of all, this is an administration that's always been very divided on, uh, on China. If you listen to Mike Pompeo, who is a true China hawk in the administration, or Peter Navarro, the, who's the trade advisor, um, you know their views are exactly what you've just described. If you go talk to Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, you get a very different view. You get a much more typical Wall Street, you know, we're going to have to learn how to manage them. They're the world's number two economy. Whether you like them or you don't like them, they're a huge trading partner. And so we're just going to have to learn how to, how to go live with them. And if that means ignoring some things that they do to protesters in Hong Kong or putting down the Muslim minority groups or whatever, then we'll, we'll deal with that. The president bounces back between these two camps depending on the moment. When it was in his interest in January to get the uh, phase one trade deal, he was bursting over with praise. If Joe Biden is looking for counter uh, material for the Biden's soft on, on China uh, line, all he has to do is pull up those <laughs> clips from January and February where the president's saying, I think that Xi Jinping's handling this very well, he's been very transparent, so forth and so on which was his view before he decided that Xi Jinping had fooled him and said nothing, right? So uh, it's hard for, I think, this administration to put together a coherent line. I think the other big area of competition, I agree with everything that Wendy uh, laid out, is actually going to come in the COVID response. 
we're already seeing the Chinese ship medical supplies and so forth to Italy, to Serbia, all kinds of places where they think they can pick off Western allies the way they're using 5G to do the same thing as they develop the telecommunications networks. And the next big competition is going to be over the vaccines. So let me leave you with this sort of scenario. Imagine for a moment that you wake up and turn on CNN one morning and you see Chinese lining up to get their vaccines put into their upper arm. And it's a vaccine that the FDA hasn't approved yet that we don't fully understand. But Donald Trump is faced with the thought that the Chinese have developed a vaccine of their own and whether it works or not, it's going into the arms of Chinese citizens. And there's huge pressure on him to be putting these into the arms of American citizens. That's going to be a really interesting moment. Because you talk to scientists about this, they all want to develop vaccines together. You talk to the Trump administration, they want to develop an America first vaccine. Well, that's an interesting context. We only have a couple minutes left, and I want to get your perspective, Anna. Having been in Beijing until fairly recently um, in your role as the bureau chief there, I uh, don't know if you've had a chance, I know it's morning where you are, to look at the South China Morning Post. The lead story on their website, which went up an hour ago, is who is winning the China-U.S. race to run the world amid the pandemic? Um, and uh, four stories down, uh, under the Pompeo story, it says U.S.-China decoupling to be accelerated by tightening of tech export controls. And related to what David is talking about, there have been a lot of talk that we can't be dependent on the Chinese pharmaceutical supply chain. Prior to that, of course, uh, in the Huawei conversation, we couldn't be dependent on them on the tech supply chain. So the, the supply chain issues are causing pressure. Um, the election's causing pressure. There is some competition to be the leader in all of this. What's the Chinese take on the American position? Yeah, well, I mean, Xi Jinping very much wants to be that leader. Um, he, you know, the Chinese system seizes on every opportunity to portray the U.S. as weak and them as strong. But at the moment, with the American response to the coronavirus, I think in many ways, President Trump's made it quite easy for them to seize on some of the missteps. And of course, they are overlooking their own very significant missteps along the way uh, there. But they are really playing up. They are trying to rewrite the narrative. They know that when the dust settles and people start to point fingers about this coronavirus, that they're going to point back to China. I mean, they already are in many ways, but that's going to uh, accelerate. And so we see China sending masks and ventilators and test kits to Italy, uh, not coincidentally. I mean, of course, it had a coronavirus outbreak, but was also the first country in Europe to sign up to the Belt and Road Initiative and to support China politically in that, in that way. So I think China is really trying to take advantage of this crisis to, uh, to create a division between countries in Europe and the United States to show itself as the beneficent, responsible global leader uh, in contrast to the US. And I mean, of course, this is all highly selective. Um, they are trying to get out ahead of this narrative that will point back to them. But I think the bigger picture here is that, uh, you know, 
Xi Jinping is trying to take advantage of the situation. Because, I mean, the way that it's coming out in terms of hostility towards America is really quite astounding, even given the past year and a half of a trade war and things. So, so just like this week, if you ride the subway in Beijing, you will see on the TVs pictures of Secretary Pompeo with a great big liar stamp across his face uh, broadcast there. The state media is calling him an enemy of humankind. Kind. I mean, it's the kind of rhetoric that North Korea used to use about John Bolton. It's not the kind of stuff that China has used about America. So I think this deep-seated conflict is, you know, it is very deep and very strong, and it's only going to accelerate in a whole bunch of ways. So we see... Yes, the race for a vaccine, the race to control the narrative, the economic influence through Belt and Road, the tech stuff. Uh, journalists are now in the crossfire. Like my own bureau in Beijing has been halved. My colleague was expelled. The New York Times bureau has been enti almost entirely wiped out in China. That, and I think things like this are just going to get worse and worse. And I really... Um, I really fear where it's heading, and especially I think this North Korea situation right now has shown us how uh, devastating this could be. Because I think, I mean, Wendy would know, but 2008 when Kim Jong Un, uh, Kim Jong Il, sorry, had a stroke. After that, the U.S. and China were able to talk to each other and able to communicate about matters of common interest. Now it seems like there is no common interest. Uh, a vaccine is not a common interest. Dealing with North Korea and securing the nuclear material is not a common interest. So it's a, it's a pretty scary situation we're in. Yeah. You know, I, I noticed Wendy nodding uh, when, when Anna referred to 2008. Uh, and I think it's clear that uh, whether it's North Korea we're talking about or world trade, or climate change, or supply chains, or dealing with pandemics, or dealing with global security issues, or dealing with global financial markets. Whether the United States remains the indispensable nation or not is open to some debate, but the U.S.-China relationship is the irreplaceable relationship. It is the core relationship at the center of global affairs right now, and it is in a, it is in a, it is in a difficult position. I wish we had more time to talk. Uh, having uh, a, a panel like we have here um, is is a is a real privilege. Uh, I can't think of people who understand these issues better than Wendy or David or uh, Anna. And uh, obviously, we we look forward to having them back again soon. We also look forward to you joining us again soon on upcoming issues uh, ep episodes of Deep State Radio. Uh, the the one we record tomorrow. We'll feature Lori Garrett, who is the leading journalist writing about this kind of epidemic. Again, she's been with us every couple of weeks throughout this. Uh, and so she will provide her unique perspectives. Uh, and then on Friday, we're going to do a one-on-one -on -one with Representative Ted Lieu, uh, who is an extremely thoughtful uh, uh, and outspoken member of the United States Congress as part of our series of discussions with senior members of the U.S. Congress. So please join us for that. For more information on it, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Please join me in thanking Wendy, David, and Anna, and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>